It's often touted that Rumi is one of the best-selling poets in the United States. That may be the case, but popular renderings of the writings of this 13th century Muslim have largely detached him from the Islamic tradition, and specifically Sufi mysticism. In Radical Love, Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Tradition, Omid Safi places Jalal din alongside luminaries within the rich archive of Islamic Sufi poetry. In this anthology of newly translated poetry, Safi focuses on love, especially ishq, what he renders as radical love. The volume organizes translations of Quran and Hadith, Sufi mystics and poets, into four thematic sections, God of Love, Path of Love, Lover and Beloved, and Beloved Community. Radical Love does an excellent job of introducing readers to key ideas from Islamic mysticism that are rooted in first-hand knowledge of Arabic and Persian texts. This book is valuable to both the scholar and the student because of Safi's informed nuance in both the careful selection of source passages and the subtle lyricism of his translations. In our conversation, we discuss the translation of Sufi poetry in English, strategies to translation work, love in the Islamic tradition, the reception of Rumi, Ahmed Ghazali's first book in Persian on love, Kowali singers, contemporary sheikhs, and several key Sufi authors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Omid Safi about Radical Love, Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Tradition, published with Yale University Press in 2018. Welcome, Amid. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Christian, for having me on. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to talk about this, this great book, Radical Love. As you know, we always start these, these conversations with a little bit about you, though. Help us figure out who you are and how you became the scholar you are. When did you decide to uh, pursue Islamic studies? Uh, what were some, some moments or mentors that were influential in shaping uh, the, the subjects you examine, the ways you do it? Uh, where, how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm sometimes um, amused more than anything else by the fact that um, I still don't feel um, so, so old. But uh, in, 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 in some ways, I guess just in terms of how people um, look at careers and things like that, I'm kind of now one of the uh, old senior people, <laughs> you know, in the field, which is just uh, hilarious in some ways. You're, you're middle of the road. Uh, middle of the road, middle of the road. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, the interesting thing for me is that um, I am uh, old enough that when I decided to pursue this, there really were not so many people in the field ahead of me that, um, if I can put it this way, looked like me. Mm. Um, so um, I was. I decided to enter Islamic studies at a time where, um, you know, the majority of scholars of Islam were either um, friendly Christians, many of whom had been trained in seminary, uh, or actually friendly Jews who had maybe started studying Hebrew and then at some point picked up Arabic and decided to do some comparative work and so on. 
Um, and I'm an I'm an immigrant kid. Um, so, you know, like almost all immigrant people of my generation, um, I was genetically pre-med. Um, <laughs> and I just thought as a good, proper brown boy, that's what I'm supposed to do. And um, so I got to Duke on the strength, uh, not of my humanities skills, uh, but actually purely based on my math and science skills. Um, I was a chemistry major initially, ended up with a biology and religion uh, degree. Biology was to get me to med school. Religion was what I did for fun for myself. Um, and, you know, I kept taking courses uh, in religion. Uh, Bruce Lawrence, very dear friend now and, uh, and colleague, was my mentor back then. Um, and uh, I studied with him. Uh, later on, Vincent Cornell also came uh, to Duke, and I uh, studied with him as well. Um, and uh, I, I still remember this very clearly. You know, it was a um, fall semester of my senior year of undergrad, and I was coming out of a chemistry lab. Um, and, you know, it was the kind of day where you go in when it's one o'clock and it's sunny. And then you come out, and it's 6 o'clock, and it's pitch black. <laughs> um, and I'm a people person. I love being around people. I have always been, and I know that about myself. Um, and I, up until really that day, I had thought um, that I'm going to make my parents proud and go to med school and be a doctor. And then, for fun, I'm going to keep reading all these books on Sufism and Islamic philosophy and poetry and Islamic thought. And I'll do that at nights and on weekends. Um, and then, you know, coming down the steps of the chemistry building, uh, it was really the sort of like Zen moment of enlightenment and the master hitting you on the head with a stick of what if I do for a living the thing that I'm actually more passionate about. Um, and, and it wasn't a matter of turning down medicine. It was just a matter of what if I actually pursue as my main orientation the thing that I always thought would be my hobby. Um, and I remember sort of like stopping in my tracks and being like, I can do that? I was like, <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. And, uh, you know, it took some time. I still went ahead and applied to med school, and I got in. Um, and I applied to one PhD program, which was Duke. And, uh, you know, was fortunate enough to be faced with a tough choice. And I decided to postpone med school for a year, and I decided to give this PhD thing a try. And, um, and I didn't look back. Uh, I, I remember going into my PhD program really woefully unprepared compared to all my colleagues who had been doing humanities and social science courses. Um, and I had just been doing labs. I was a science nerd. And I remember that first year, it seems like the entire year was spent sitting in these seminars. And this is the early 1990s, the heyday of postmodernism, where... <laughs> You don't have a damn thing to say, but you can problematize anything that anybody else says. 
And I remember like, you know, the professor would say like all these words that they sounded like English words, but they said them with a French accent. So it's not <laughs> habitat, it's habitat, you know, and all of a sudden it means something else. And I was like, wait, I thought this was an English word, but now it's not. So what happened? Um, and I just, I was lost and I was so out of my element. And all these other grad students, they knew how to nod. The professor would say something and they would just knowingly nod their heads up and down three times. And the ones who were really smart, they would sort of like strike their chins and stroke it very wisely. If they had a beard and they were dudes, they would just stroke their beards once, twice, three times. And I was like, I don't know when to nod and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my beard. Um, and then one day, like, you know, a professor was like, so who can summarize uh, what is feminist post-structuralism? And all the same dudes who had been sitting there stroking their beards, they started looking up at the ceiling and they were like, well, it's very difficult to summarize. And I was like, you don't know it either. You're all a bunch of fakers, you know? Um, and uh, anyway, so it, it, was a, it was a wonderful kind of journey. And uh, none of us get here um, alone and on our own. And I think one of the things that has really shaped my own life and um, whatever level of involvement I've had in the academy, uh, it's been... Being fortunate enough to have had some great mentors who've become friends. Um, I've already mentioned Bruce Lawrence and Vincent Cornell. Um, Carl Ernst was a mentor. Um, Ahmed Kara Mustafa, uh, amazing, amazing mentor and dear friend. Um, Hamid Algar was someone that took an interest in me and spent a year out of his life, even though I wasn't even his student. Um, taking me out to lunch twice a week and just giving me an endless amount of encouragement and resources. Um, you, do you know this text? Okay, go read that and read chapter four. And then next time, all right, you did that. Now do this one. And what do you think about that? And, and um, I didn't know at that time just how important that kind of mentorship and a fellowship and a sense of building up an intellectual community was until I became a professor. And uh, so in some ways, I think what I've kind of tried to do in paying it forward has been, um, you know, there's nothing that I can do to thank my mentors looking past, but maybe I can do a little bit by paying it forward and try to provide a sense of encouragement and, and, and heartening um, other friends who've joined the field since then who um, may also experience academia as a very lonely um, process and to let them know that they and we don't have to be alone and that we're all in this together. Um, and uh, yeah, so some 30 years later, uh, here I am and here we are. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a pleasant journey so far, Omid. It's a beautiful life, my friend. It really is. Now, um, it's it's obvious from the people you've worked with and uh, from your previous uh, scholarship that um, the mystical tradition of Islam um, has been uh, a focus of yours. And with the present book, um, 
you provide primarily a, a, a number of translations of Sufi poetry in English. And there, there's lots of other resources like this. Um, many people might think of people like Arbery or Nicholson. Uh, other listeners might think of people like Coleman Barks. Yeah, right. Um, I, of course, uh, as you might guess, think of people like William Chittick. Yep. Um, but uh, can, can you just kind of give us a, a brief sketch of uh, the types of translations that have been available to people in English? Sure. And then uh, let's, uh, what, what's your goal in producing this, this new volume of translations? Where yeah. do you fit into that picture? Right, right. That's a great, um, uh, that's a great question. Great question. I can see why you do this for a living, my friend. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I'm going to try not to do the, uh, the Goldilocks principle of, you know, this one's too hot and this one's too cold <laughs> and mine is just right, you know? Um, even, though, even though that is in some ways kind of what I'm aiming for. Um, and I'll try to explain what I mean by that. So, um, you know, it's kind of fashionable to bash uh, Orientalists, and and uh, and I should probably list bashing Orientalists as a line on my CV somewhere. Um, but you know, you also give them some love. You got to give them some love for the time and the work and the effort um, that they put. Um, sometimes working for decades, um, not for a whole lot of monetary gain, to do what they did. Um, and, you know, someone like Nicholson, for example, um, translated all of Rumi's Masnavi at a time that there was no critical edition. So he had to go based on manuscripts and, uh, you know, figure out as best as he could how to translate them. Um, but he says, uh, and his student Arbery actually says for him, um, that, uh, and this is a direct quote, um, no concession has been made to readability. And what they meant by that was that the translations into uh, English from the original Persian and Arabic sources that they were working with really were intended as, a, as an aid and as a study guide for students of Islamic studies who were studying Persian and Arabic at Cambridge. That if you had the original on one side and you had Arbery and Nicholson on the other side, you should be able to go back and forth in order to improve your study of these key Islamic languages, namely Arabic and Persian. Um, now, Arbery also has a wonderful uh, poetic quality. I happen to think that his Quran translation, for example, is quite poetic. Um, but the Nicholson translation of the Masnavi, which is um, a remarkable accomplishment, and to this day, it's still the only complete English translation until Javed, um, Javed Mujaddidi finishes his translation, inshallah. Um, it's a remarkable project. It will never be mistaken for a work of poetry itself. It is painfully didactic, and a word-by-word -word translation. Um, and, you know, he, Nicholson also says, and this is a quote, that all of us who love Rumi and love Sufi poetry, uh, we love to borrow that from Nicholson, that Rumi might well be the greatest mystic poet 
that the world has ever produced. And yet you try to assign Nicholson's translation of the Mesnavi to our students, and our students are looking at this Victorian translation that is filled with thou's and thine's and shouldists and and. And, uh, and they're like, I don't know what you mean by this being the greatest mystical poet in the world because I can hardly get through one line of it. Um, so put that on one side of the Goldilocks principle, um, which we're trying not to do, but we're actually doing. And then on the other side, um, you've got uh, works of people like Coleman Barks, who is also a friend. So I'm going to try to... Um, speak of it in a way that I could say and would say if Coleman were right here in the room. Um, and, and if it's possible, um, Coleman's actually uh, the good one uh, in the following sense. Um, so first of all, what Coleman is doing is that he never claims to be a scholar and he never claims to be a scholar of Sufism. And um, if you put a page of Persian or Arabic writing in front of him, um, you know, he might struggle figuring out which end is up. Um, he, couldn't, he could not and does not work from the original. What he does is that he works from the literal translations provided to him by Nicholson and Arbery. And then he versifies them. He puts them in American free verse. Um, and his poetry is gorgeous. It's truly inspired poetry. Um, and there are times, and this may not be a very popular thing for a scholar of Sufism like me to admit, there are times that I like Coleman's poems better than Rumi's original. Because I just think he's really hit something with the translations that he's come up with. And, you know, secretly, many Rumi scholars will tell you that privately, never publicly, because <laughs> we're all jealous. I mean, you know, look, you spend your life doing something and then your book sells like 500 copies. <laughs> and meanwhile, like, the, you know, essential Rumi um, sold like half a million copies, right? And you're like, I want that. I admit, I have enough of an ego that I want my book to be, you know, in Walmart and in Target and in airports. And I want it to be the one that people gift to one another um, for weddings and, you know, Christmas presents, not to mention Eid presents um, and Hanukkah and whatever. Um, so Coleman's poetry is truly beautiful. It is inspired. He's got these amazing lines that you just have to close the book and sit with it for a while. Um, there is no liquid like a tear from a lover's eye. I mean, that's good. That is, that is good stuff. I am sober, and I have always been sober, and that line sends you into a kind of ecstasy. Um, and, and, and then went to hear Coleman do it. And Coleman is a, is a good old Southern gentleman from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he's got that sweet honey baritone. And, you know, like uh, all the, the nerds and the Sufism nerds and Islamic studies nerds who listen to this, go and, and look up Coleman reciting a Rumi poem called Love Dogs. It's on YouTube. Um, and just, you know, 
listen, listen to Coleman reciting that, and you will have you will have an ecstatic experience. Um, and it is it's amazing how beautiful um, that that poem is as Coleman is reciting it. Um, you know, and um, so it's it's very powerful, very lovely. Uh, and Coleman, sometimes it's not known, he was actually a student of Baba Mohaitin. So he was part of a Sufi community in Philadelphia. And he's also got that connection, that transmission, that lineage going for him, which is important for me. And I think for people who know Sufism and the way that the transmission of Baraka works. Having said that, and here's the part that I would say, even if Coleman were in the room, um, Coleman's also very open about the fact that he's trying to minimize the explicitly religious nature of his translations because, he says, and I think rightly so, so many people come to the pursuit of spirituality having been traumatized through institutional models of religion. And I'm not here talking about the most obvious example of, if you would, um, Catholics who might have been sexually molested, having grown up by some perverted priest somewhere. Like that's only the most um, outward and obvious manifestation. I'm here talking about, um, you know, every Muslim woman who goes into a mosque and is told not to walk in from the front door but to go in through a basement door next to the trash can or to walk in and to see that the brother's area is carpeted and air conditioned and the women's area is a tenth the size of that and cramped and hot and that they can't see or really hear the imam well, much less from something as perhaps reasonable or controversial, depending on your point of view, as women actually leading prayers themselves. Um, every woman who's ever been told that a strand of her hair is showing from under the hijab um, has experienced a religious space as something that is less than fully um, inviting and um, embracing and a place that allows us to be fully human in the totality of who we are. So. To make space for that, what Coleman does is a lot of times when Rumi's poetry is talking about God, Coleman will translate that as beloved. A lot of times when the poetry um, includes references to the Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, um, Coleman might leave that out. And Rumi's poetry has um, rightly so been called one of the most Quranic models of Islamic literature. Um, I think I made up a new word by calling Rumi uh, a Quranful example of Muslim literature. And um, uh, and then you know there's there's times where what um, Coleman does is so subtle um, that you almost miss the fact that he is minimizing um, the, uh, 
um, the explicitly Islamic nature of uh, Rumi's love poetry. Um, so there's a very well-known um, Rumi poem that, that is known and is oftentimes cited by people. I've even included it one time in an article that I wrote because uh, it's so beautiful. Um, that, um, uh, that, that he says something like, um, today, like every day, um, we wake up um, broken. Um, uh, let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And that line, there's hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground, is usually um, uh, invoked by people as, as a, a call for a more open-hearted model of pluralism or universalism. Well, you know, that's lovely, and I like that too. Um, but when you go back to the original, you find out that what Rumi's actually saying is for the one for whom the beauty of the friend, and the friend is always a way of speaking about God, the beauty of the friend is your direction of prayer. There are hundreds of ways to do ruku and sajda. There's hundreds of ways to bow down in prayer and to prostrate yourself and put your head on the ground in prayer. So what Rumi is doing is that he's taking language that rises up from the prescribed five times a day Islamic prayers, the salat or the namaz, as it's called in Arabic and Persian. And he's taking these postures of prayer, which are known to every Muslim who would have been reading Rumi's poetry, and he's saying there are many ways of doing the rituals of prayer as long as the face of the beloved divine manifest in humanity indicates the direction of prayer. Now, that's a beautiful model of tapping into the particularity of the Islamic tradition to open it up towards this open-hearted inclusivity. But you wouldn't get that by just hearing the lines, there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. So to wrap up the Goldilocks and long-winded <laughs> principle, this is in the middle of these two, is kind of where I've tried to position radical love. So unlike Nicholson and Arbery, I wanted to make sure that I would have a collection where, which is not intended primarily as a study guide for students of Arabic and Persian. Uh, it was really important for me that these teachings, these poems, these stories, these maxims, hold their own in English. So that if we tell people this is love poetry and they read it, they could say, Oh yeah, I can I can see this is poetry. Um, and in the back of the book, I've given the citation for where they're supposed to find the original, so that if somebody wants to go back and find, um, you know, where does that Rumi poem or that Attar poem or that Hadith Qudsi come from, 
they can do that. But on purpose, I chose not to print the Arabic and the Persian and the Urdu and the Turkish uh, original on facing page or above the text because I didn't want that kind of primary language authority to be dictated above what the translation is saying on one hand. And on the other hand, I also wanted to make sure that this would come across very much, not only as radical love, which is a translation I have for ishq, um, but teachings from the Islamic mystical tradition. It was very important for me that Rumi be seen as part of this grand tradition of Islamic spirituality, that you have the verses of the Quran and the Hadith Qudsi tradition, which informs and animates the entire love tradition, out of which we get a Rumi and an Attar and a Hafiz and a Sadi and an Abu Sa'id and a Kharaqani. Um, and so, you know, an analogy that I've used in that context is, uh, you know, some people treat Rumi as a one-off, that he's just this pinnacle of Islamic spirituality, of Sufism. Well, you know, Everest might be the tallest mountain in the world, but you don't get Everest without the Himalayas. The, the, the Himalayas quite literally are propping up Mount Everest, and it's the rising up of this mountain range that is pushing up and pushing up and pushing up Everest to reach the height that it has. And I might agree with people that Rumi is, if not the pinnacle, a pinnacle of Islamic spirituality, of poetry, of love mysticism. But I also wanted people to see where does he come from? What tradition gives birth to him? What's the mountain range that is both propping him up, anchoring him, and pushing him heavenward? You th I think you've done an excellent job of uh, showing that by this uh, very varied collection, which really moves beyond people just like uh, Rumi or uh, or some of these others that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, nerd question here before we get into a little bit more of the content. Uh, the, your translation work, can you talk a little bit about how you go about working on translation? Uh, did you have a particular strategy or process that you followed in terms of uh, working through various texts, similar to terminology, these kind of questions? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So, you know, basically what I did was um, I started with um, some of the poems and some of the stories that I've always loved and I've always loved telling my students. Um, and, you know, a lot of us write books because... Uh, we wish that there was a book like this out there, and then we find out that there's not, and so we have to write it. Um, and, um, I, I, and and what I did, I, I went through a double translation process. So at first, I sat there with the Book of Rumi or the Book of Attar or the Hadith Qudsi collection or, um, you know, Hafiz um, there, 
And I tried to come up with a as literal of a translation as uh, I could um, until I was satisfied with it. And then when I was, I didn't close the primary source, but I pushed it back just a foot or so. And I started to work with the more literal translation that I had done. And I started to ask myself the question, what does this need in order for it to function as an English poem, as an English language poem? So, for example, um, a, um, a kazal, a, a love lyric in Persian, uh, typically is between 7 and 14 lines. And the poet almost always mentions his or her name in the last line. So you think about 7 to 14 lines. Um, every line has two parts. So we're talking about 14 to 28 lines in English. Um, that's a little bit long for the attention span of most American readers of free verse poetry. And I started to look at the lines and, and ask myself the question, what are the key symbols or turns that um, the original poet has introduced, which are really capturing and conveying the kernel, uh, the lob, the heart of what is being conveyed here. And how can I distill the poem down to those lines? And, you know, lo and behold, I found that maybe you don't need all 14 to 28 lines. Maybe you actually do better by having 8 to 10 lines. So sometimes, you know, uh, particularly in Persian, the poets love to take a metaphor and to introduce the same metaphor six different ways. Um, and it, it's part of them showing off the mastery of their craft. Um, and that works really well in Persian, but in English it comes across as a little redundant. Um, and um, so I kind of, you know, kept working at it, and 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 I wanted to make sure that the original was still there, so that I wasn't taking um, too big of a leap of of um, kind of poetic license where. Um, you could no longer recognize the original, but I really think of it as a matter of distilling um, the literal translation to something that uh, if a person were to see only the English translation, uh, that it would work for them. Um, and, um, and on the whole, you know, I'm, I'm quite grateful for how this has come across. Yeah. Um, so uh, this this term that you have been using, radical love, you're refer referring to um, this term ishk. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could kind of, uh, you know, in introduce us to uh, that concept and, and the concept of love more generally within the Islamic tradition, um, perhaps uh, uh, explain the different types of love and, and why you felt like uh, focusing on this theme rather than another wasn't important uh, in displaying kind of the variety of Islam we find historically. Sure, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, there are um, a whole range 
of terms within the Islamic tradition, um, Arabic, Persian, Turkish, Urdu for beginners. And then, um, of course, one can go on and talk about um, Mandarin and Malay and Wolof and so many other languages. Um, and um, uh, so I was restricted to the languages that I'm a little more familiar with. Um, and Quranically, what we tend to get is the language of hope. Uh, hope. And you have lots and lots of Quranic verses about um, God uh, hopes, God loves uh, the people who embody beauty, and God does not love those who are unjust and such and such a thing. Um, it may be that you love doing this, but it's not really good for you, and it may be that you don't love doing that, but that's actually what your soul really needs. Um, and so within the Quran and the very early Arabic Islamic tradition, it is this language of uh, hub, um, which I've sometimes rendered this, borrowing a term from our Buddhist friends, as loving kindness. Um, it's, it's a kind of love which is not too scary. <laughs> and um, and uh, sometimes, you know, some Sufi um, sources and texts talk about um, that this word hub uh, might have had something in common with the word uh, hubab, which is bubble. Uh, so this is when uh, loving kindness forms like a little air pocket deep in your heart. And as the heat of love um, excites it and animates it, this love bubble uh, rises through your heart until it comes to the surface of your being and it pops as as a glance, as a touch, as a word, um, expressing your loving kindness towards another. But that's the hub tradition. A few centuries into Islamic thought, this term ishq really begins to take over and particularly does so in Persian. Um, so I am, to, to, to some extent, I think in this collection, um, pushing a little bit against the um, Arab-centric views of Islamic studies that view um, Islamic thought uh, when it's only in the context of fiqh or kalam um, and always in Arabic as um, the only legitimate modes of Islamic thought and practice. Um, and really kind of trying to have a much more expansive view of Islamic thought and life and practice that decenters any one language, uh, whether it's Arabic or Persian or Turkish, um, and certainly decenters discourses, uh, whether it is fiqh or falsafa or kalam or Sufism as being the only acceptable or the primary acceptable modes of quote-unquote authentic Islam, um, and also decenters um, geography, so that I don't want us to take only uh, Iraq, historic Iraq, or Egypt, or Syria, or um, Arabia, or Iran um, as being, if you would, the quote-unquote heartland of Islam and everything else as periphery. So I was kind of trying to take this more expansive view and thus include people from a wider variety of, of backgrounds and discourses. Uh, and this term, ishq, 
uh, surfaces in uh, particularly in the Persianate tradition. And by Persianate, I'm here not only referring to present day or historic Iran, but really that um, kind of Hutsonian notion of um, he might have preferred a term like you know Iran-Semitic or Persian-Semitic tradition um, that would have extended everywhere from the Nile to Oxus, from North India to what's today Pakistan and Afghanistan, Central Asia, Iran, and the Ottoman Empire. Um, Shahab Ahmad, of course, um, you know the late and much missed Shahab Ahmad, um, also talks about the Bengal to Bosnia. Uh, kind of a landscape. So I'm not talking about any modern nation-state boundaries, much more expansive, generous view of, of, of being Muslim. And, and within these places, we found that this term eshq, which is hub, that loving kindness, when it exceeds all the bounds, when it transcends all the borders, um, love when it goes too far, <laughs> um, and, and I played with a couple of translations. I was going to go with the term supreme, um, love supreme, uh, also with a little nod towards John Coltrane, um, whom, of course, was deeply in dialogue with Muslims back in the 60s, as were so many great jazz musicians. So I was going to go with love supreme, um, and I decided not to because a love supreme has retains some of the connotation of transcending. And that very point was the starting point of the school of thought that really informs the Radical Love book. Um, And here we're kind of getting to the heart of the book and your question. Is They made a distinction, these Sufis a thousand years ago, between... um, uh, the early Sufis made a distinction between what they called ishq uh, majazi, metaphorical love, and ishq hariri, real, capital R, real love, real love. And they said the early Sufis, so let's say from the time of the Prophet all the way up to around the year more or less um, 1000 or 1100, that Metaphorical love is when we love one another as human beings. That that's a metaphor for love. It's an alphabet of love. We've got to learn to love each other before we can transcend it to the form of ishqahariri, real love. Real love is only love for God. And that was really the cornerstone of this early, early Sufi tradition. But the Sufis that I wanted to bring to the forefront, and I use the term radical love, and the term radical in English, um, which nowadays just means extreme, right? Uh, all kinds of Muslims are accused of being radicals, <laughs> um, sometimes for something as innocent as just calling out empire. Um, and uh, I'm also very invested in recovering <laughs> a positive connotation for the term radical. Uh, but the term radical initially meant to go back to the heart of the matter. The term radical meant to go back to the core of something, the root of something. Of course, Rumi talks about the path of radical love to go back to the root of the root 
of the roots of the faith. Um, so these radical love Sufis, and their founder in some ways is the younger brother of the more famous Imam al-Ghazali, named Ahmed Ghazali. Um, and Ahmed Ghazali, and he's on the cover of the book, sitting with his disciple, Ain al-Ghazati Hamidani. Um, Ahmed Ghazali writes the book on radical love, this masterpiece called the Sabaneh. And on the very first page, he says, my friends ask me to write them a book on radical love. And I said that I would on one condition that you never ask me to bifurcate love into the love of humans or the love of God because love is one. So um, in, a, in a kind of, again, uh, music is very important to me, not just Coltrane, but all kinds of music genres. And um, you know, one music genre that I think you and I also share an appreciation for is reggae music. Um, so these are the original uh, Bob Marley uh, one love mystics. And the whole radical love tradition is built on this notion that love is one. That if you want to learn to love God, you've got to love human beings. And that we're never again going to bifurcate love into a metaphor versus the real. But there's one love. And so that's why the poems that you have in here... Um, they are characterized by this delicious kind of subtlety and ambiguity where you can read them as if they are meant for a lover, a friend, a spiritual teacher, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, or for God. And the truth of the matter is that they're probably written for all of those simultaneously. And it's that ambiguity and that subtlety which makes people either love this radical love tradition um, or if they're used to a very neat and compartmentalized Aristotelian view of the world, it makes them run away for, you know, the much calmer oceans of Kalam. Now, um, in discussing this uh this topic of radical love, you break down uh, or kind of thematize um, different aspects of it um, into four sections of the book, um, which you call God of Love, Path of Love, Lover and Beloved, and Beloved Community. Can you kind of uh, outline for us um, how these different, uh, or why you're structuring in this way? What do these different uh, headings mean in terms of the, the type of poetry that we're introduced to. Yeah. Um, so I started out with the God of love because I wanted to make very uh, clear that for these particular Sufis, um, not only is the divine seen as not only loving, so love is not only um, an attribute, one of the Asma al-Husna, uh, but love is actually the very essence, the very being of God. Um, and some of the later Sufis uh, say that quite explicitly, people like Al-Hadid-Din Kermani um, and, and others in books. Um, you know, if you read something like the Lama'at, for example, uh, they very specifically identify 
love as the very being of God. Um, and uh, so, you know, and I wanted to make sure in that section that there were those references to the Quran and Hadith Qudsi and some of the early Sufis from people like Rabia, um, uh, but, but also include some material from some of the later Sufis um, who are coming back to this notion of uh, the God of love um, in, in that sense. Um, people like Sahla Tustari, who, when he's asked, what is the path? And he just simply says, the path is to be at ease with God. Be at ease with God. Um, to see the very being of the Prophet Muhammad as uh, the Prophet of Mercy, Nabiyur Rahma, Rahmatun Lilalameen. The path of love was kind of a reminder that so many of these key uh, Islamic terms, Sharia and Tariqa, these all mean path. And we're so used to discussing them as a codified uh, school. Um, but they have to have this notion of, of a movement, of a path that you progress on. So that was one reason why I st- included a lot of stories in that section, um, such as Rumi's stories about how there are many paths to the Kaaba. And that, I mean, Rumi says, you know, a caravan that comes from Syria is coming from this direction, but a caravan coming from Iran or from Arabia might be seen as coming from a different or even opposing direction, the goal is to get to the Kaaba. And once you get to the Kaaba, it doesn't matter which direction you came from. Uh, it matters that you got there. Um, and um, so I included so many of these um, types of um, sayings and, and, and stories. Many of them have this notion of a journey as a theme. Um, uh, Kharaghani has a poem. Um, choose wholehearted surrender to God and your journey home will be short. Um, And um, then we get to the lover and the beloved section. And these are some of the ones in which um, you get specifically the very sensual, um, even I would say erotic, poetry, uh, which was, of course, so characteristic of Sufi poetry. Uh, you know, one of the, again, one of the themes that I kind of want to push back a little bit on is uh, a notion that we get in too many circles in both academic and devotional study of Sufism, which were trying to reduce Sufism to simply tazkiyat uh, nafs the purification of the self. Um, and then you end up with a Sufism that has no poetry, that has no mysticism, that has no saintly beings, has no metaphysics, and it's simply a model of disciplining um, the heart. Well, you know, the disciplining is is a, a key component, but so are all these other ones. Um, so, um, you know, that, that section, The Lover and the Beloved, begins with one of my very favorite um, poems in the whole book, which is a Rumi poem in which uh, Rumi describes himself having an experience of seeing love embodied. Um, And and love comes to him, and uh, Rumi just becomes love-crazed through this experience. 
and he has this dialogue <laughs> with love, um, and love keeps hushing him by kissing him. This is a trope in Sufi poetry. You ask too many questions, so they kiss you to shut you up. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so at some point, Rumi says, you are the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. What are you? Are you, are you a human? And love says, no, <laughs> not a human. And it's like, are, are, you, are you a huri? No, not a huri. Um, uh, are, are, are you an angel? No, not an angel. And then at some point, you know, Grumi just freaks out. Well, if you're not a human, and if you're not an angel, if you're not, the only thing left is God. And he's like, well, what, tell me, like, what are you? What you're describing, isn't this the very being of God? And then love kisses him again says, yes, my child, but hush, say nothing. Um, so, you know, these otherworldly, uh, sensual experiences that are uh, described in that lover and beloved section, and you could read them as a simple love poem and a love story, or you can read this as um, almost a miraj type of experience of encountering the divine beloved. and this direct face-to-face -face encounter with the beloved. And the last section, the beloved community, which of course is, um, you know, that's a little, um, not just a nod, but a love nod uh, towards the civil rights movement. Um, the term obviously comes from Dr. King. Um, but it's also my way of trying to render the term uh, ummah, um, which is not just a community, <laughs> It's really, it's a community of love. It's the mother community. The word um is an ummah. Um, and so here, what I was pushing against was that mysticism in so much of Western thought becomes reduced to a kind of solitary individualistic pursuit. It becomes self-realization. Um, and you can find a lot of Sufi books in the self-help section of bookstores. And I wanted to kind of remind us that no, actually um, the Sufi path has not only notions of eroticism and sensuality and purification of the heart and discipline, but it's also a communal process. Uh, and that there are many lessons on, of the Sufi path that the scholars have always said, we only learn when we have somebody else as a mirror for us. Uh, so that was the reason that um, I, I included that particular section, uh, which talks about our interpersonal dealings, um, our shortcomings in establishing a communal sense of, of well-being. And um, that was also a way of, of um, bringing in some of the elements of um, something that both the Sufis say, and also, of course, we see this in other faith traditions like the civil rights movement, that when love comes public, we call it justice. So this is something that my students have always asked me is, okay, so all these love poems are really great. What does this have to say about Black Lives Matter? What do they have to say about um, gender justice? What do they have to say about hunger and about a war? A world that is almost literally going mad in front of us. 
Um, and so I kind of wanted to include some of those teachings that, no, when these love teachings move into the public arena, uh, we recognize them as justice. And justice is never personal justice. Justice is always about the way that we allocate our resources, finite resources, out in public. And so I wanted to have some sense and notion of how the very same love poets and mystics were talking about uh, sensual encounters with the divine beloved and the human beloved also have extraordinary teachings on social justice and on service as well. Now, uh, you, you've kind of sprinkled our conversation with the many uh, kind of giants of the, the Islamic mystical tradition. Um, I was I was very pleased to see some some maybe minority voices or yes. or perhaps unexpected voices. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of these maybe uh, the, the the kind of diverse selections uh, that you included uh, in your uh, anthology here? Yeah. So thank you. So I mean, you know, most people who've studied uh, Sufism um, or even you know scholars of Islamic studies who specialize in the other traditions, yes, they would have heard of a Rumi of um, of a Hafiz, um, you know, perhaps an Ibn Arabi, but I also wanted to make sure that there would be some of these uh, lesser-known giants that would be and should be uh, included. And you know, there's there's some extraordinary people um, who've not really been translated much uh, into the English language uh, before. One of them is this person that I'm so fond of, and I tried as much as I could <laughs> to include a few of these um, teachings uh, in there. Um, one of them is an early mystic, about 200 years or so before the time of Rumi, named Abul Hassan Kharagani. Um, and again, very few people have heard of him outside of hardcore, radical love, <laughs> Sufis. Um, and he's got stories in there like, you know... Um, Apparently, these people all talk to God every night. And um, in our society, we lock up people who talk to God and they hear the voice of God. But in that society, it was common. Uh, you know, he goes to bed and he's praying and he hears the voice of God coming to him and says, God says to him, do you want me to tell people everything that I know about you, all the dirty little secrets that I know about you, all of your shortcomings, uh, all the hypocrisies that are in your heart? And if I do... Uh, they're going to stone you. And Kharagani doesn't miss a beat. Uh, you know, he says back to God, uh, talks back to God, uh, saying, you know, uh, my Lord, do you want me to go and tell people everything that I know about you, that you love your creation so much uh, that you are never going to throw a single one of them into hellfire, no matter what you say? And if I do, then no one's going to pray and no one's going to fast, and no one's going to do any of these things that you tell us to do uh, because they're going to have nothing to fear from you. Um, and then there's a long uh, pregnant pause, and the voice of God comes back and says, how about this? I say nothing, you say nothing. Right? And you know what's so great about the story is that this is not some 1960s California New Ager hippie story. Right? This story is a thousand years old, and it's from the most authoritative sources of the Sufi tradition. 
Um, so a thousand years ago, in some ways at the height of the influence of the Sufi tradition, there were people whose conception of God was so tender, was so fluid, was so um, moist with this kind of radical love. Um, and I'm trying to, in some ways, also bring up Karakani has a wonderful poem. Um, it's called Everywhere. It says, Everywhere you look, there is God. Uh, look beneath God. Look above God. Look to the right God. Look to the left God. Look behind you God. Look in front of you God. Um, and it's, um, uh, you know, these are, I think, again, some of the kind of slightly um, lesser known. Um, I already made a mention of um, one of them, Sahle Tostari. Um, you know, another very uh, famous and important one is a guy named Shebli, uh, Shebli um, who he was asked, what is it like for you to, to be with God? And he said, um, to be with God is like being a toddler in his mama's lap. Uh, says the, the the mystics are children in God's lap, right? Which is such a parental image of where you are safe, where you are loved, where you are nurtured, um, and um, uh, and I, again, I think like they can put convey so much in one little um, one little saying, um, and I think that's. Uh, some of these kind of sayings are um, quite quite important. Um, so that's partially what I've kind of tried to to do. And if you have time, I'm happy to give one more example. Yeah, please, please go ahead. I was also really interested to see people like uh, <clears throat> I think you had some uh, Kowali singers and Inya yeah. Khan and right, 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 right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, one of the um, it's in some ways it's a little easier to include historic examples and one place that i knew um that i would be uh, leaving myself up for a lot of um, potential criticism was many of um contemporary scholars of sufism themselves have um an inclination towards the subject matter whether it is you know simply a kind of admiration and adoration or aesthetic and spiritual and intellectual appreciation, or in the case of many people, it is uh, actually formal affiliation with specific Sufi orders, uh, contemporary living Sufi orders. And so, you know, uh, no one's going to get too mad at you if you include Rumi and Attar and Hafez and Abu Sa'id and Kharagani and Shebli. But if you start including um, two uh, or three uh, 20th century and 21st century ones, but you don't include somebody else's teacher, then they can be like, why isn't my teacher in there? Don't you think my teacher is as good as, you know, the people who are in there? <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, that's a can of worms that I knew uh, is there and would be there. But in the end, I decided to include some. Um, and, and part of that was, uh, you know, simply just to remind us that, this is a living tradition. Uh, this is not um, something that we encounter in museums. 
and um, and in fact, you know, the way that many of us uh, have have um, come to see uh, about this tradition and these sayings has been through contemporary teachers and contemporary musicians who bring these to life. Um, so. Uh, you made mention of a Qawwali poem from the Sabri brothers. Um, many people know about Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. And of course, Nusrat, uh, rightly so, is a giant, um, larger than life figure and um, incredible voice, incredible passion. Um, I think for, for particularly Sufi uh, devotees, you could say that the Sabri brothers might be even um, more important because the Sabri brothers... Um, were so squarely uh, situated in the classical Qawwali Sufi tradition. Um, and, um, you know, they have an entire um, CD that is uh, devoted just to praise of songs for the Prophet and another CD that is just the poetry of Jami, uh, another giant that I don't think even made it to this book. Um, and so they have this wonderful um, poem that. Um, that uh, is called in this book, uh, Something Else, Something Else. And, you know, the first time that I encountered it was by listening to um, the poetry of the, the singing of the Sabri brothers, um, uh, search from horizon to horizon, uh, seeking the love of beautiful souls. I've seen a lot of good and beautiful ones, uh, but you, Muhammad, uh, you are something else. Um, and what they're doing is that they've taken an old poem of Amir Khosrow and they've adapted it to, and they've taken a love poem of Amir Khosrow and they've taken it to become a poem about the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and so here I kind of gave them the credit as the author of the poem rather than Amir Khosrow because I heard it from them and because it was recast as a not poem in praise of the Prophet. Um, and there's also material in here from Hazrat Anayit Khan um, who is sometimes talked about as being um, the first uh, transnational Muslim figure to have come to the West. Um, that is only if one bypasses, of course, the um, perhaps one million uh, Muslim enslaved uh, West Africans, uh, many if not most of whom were themselves Sufis as well. Um, but the first known Sufi that, that we know of to have come to the West was probably Hazrat Naid Khan. So I kind of wanted to include him as well. Well, Omi, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'm sure folks would love to know what else you're working on. And you're, you're always doing lots of interesting stuff, but uh, yeah, perhaps uh, in the public and in uh, academic domains, what, what can we expect from you down the road? You know, uh, thank you. Um, uh, academia is, is, is my home. And it's, um, uh, I've, as I think we started by talking about how we all got into this delicious mess. And um, the importance of community 
and mentorship uh, for me personally. I've benefited so much from um, the love and the care and the mentorship of people. And, uh, you know, as, as long as I'm um, in this realm, I'm happy to pay that forward and, and uh, reach out to others and be of service to others. So, you know, the, the section you see in there about the beloved community, that's not a chapter unit for me. It really is about what would it be like if we lived academia as if it was and it could be a beloved community for us. Um, and then I'm also, you know, being a radical person, <laughs> um, not just a radical love person, but a radical person. Um, I'm also increasingly concerned about how our very universities, our neoliberal institutions, which are for-profit ventures um, and increasingly um, more and more difficult for many ordinary working folk to have access to the brilliant work that takes place in the university. So a lot of what I'm committed to is how do we take the insights that we cultivate in a university context, and yes, on a university payroll, um, and bring it into the public square in the same way that love is supposed to come to the public square. And the two things that I have going on there now are, um, I used to blog uh, at a place called On Being, and it seems like the attention of so many people has moved to podcasting, and you know, great things like the new books um, series that you have been such an incredible leader in. So I'm trying to walk in your footsteps, my brother. <laughs> uh, and um, there is a, a podcast series that I've started. Um, uh, I think it was given the title uh, Sufi Heart. Um, and it's on a network called uh, Be Here Now. Uh, Be Here Now. And it's, it's not mainly an academic series. It's um, by actual kind of practitioners of diverse spiritual background, people like um, Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield are there, uh, mainly from the Buddhist tradition. So this is the first time that someone bringing the insights of the Islamic tradition is there. So the Sufi Heart podcast, which people can find it on the podcast app and everything, um, is there. And uh, and then, you know, the other part for me is I've, I've been a little concerned again that um, at a time where knowledge about uh, Islam and Islamic studies and Muslims seems to be uh, at a pretty dismal level um, and getting worse in some ways, uh, how do we create programs for uh, the public, for the people, for the folk, to also have an opportunity to... Um, uh, to participate in this kind of learning. And um, it, it occurred to me some years ago that the lives of so many of my students had been transformed when they came on a study abroad experience. And where is it written that only 18 to 22-year-olds should have study abroad experiences? So um, I decided to set up um, a program to take um, adult folk, working folk, uh, over to Muslim-majority countries on fairly short 10-day programs where they're exposed to the history and the culture and the religion and the politics and the arts and the debates of these different Muslim-majority countries. And uh, so far, we have programs that go to Turkey and Morocco. 
and we go twice a year. And if anybody's interested, they're welcome. It's open to people of all age groups and backgrounds. And that one is called Illuminated Tours. Um, there's a website for it, not surprisingly, called illuminatedtours.com. Um, uh, a lot of thought went into that website. Name, you know? uh, we had a committee who had a subcommittee who had a strategic plan to come up with a website name, and we came up with illuminatedtours.com. Um, and, uh, and that program really is one of the most joyful things that I get to do. We've had about 600 people uh, so far take part from more than 15 countries. And um, we are going um, in April of 2019 to Morocco and sometime later again back to Turkey. Great. Well, Omid, thanks for uh, making the time to talk about this wonderful book. And thanks for all the, the care you put into uh, constructing a wonderful volume. My friend, thank you so much. And thank you for doing the work that you do. Um, I think a lot of us, if they, we were going to be honest, uh, we would say how much we are benefiting and we have benefited uh, from uh, from this whole new books uh, series that you are, are doing. And that when we may not have enough time to read a book cover to cover, uh, we surely have enough time to sit down for uh, 45 minutes to an hour and just learn from the authors talking with you and the other folks that you have gotten involved. That's a work of service and it's a work of love. And, uh, and I am, and I know so many of us are grateful to you as well. Well, thanks, Omid. It's, it's fun to be part of this beloved community we're making together. There you go. Takes all of us. <laughs> all right. Take care. Thanks. You too, my friend. Take care. That was my conversation with Omid Safi, author of Radical Love, Teachings from the Islamic Mystical Tradition, published with Yale University Press in 2018. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.